Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to finish up Romans 16 in this audio, going from verses 17, going starting from verse 17 to the end, which is verse 27. Our context is this. In the first part of chapter 16, Paul is given a lot of closing farewells, or greetings, I should say, greetings to people in the church of Rome, people he knew. And now we start in verse 17, Romans 16. Now I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause dissensions and obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have learned. Avoid them. Now who these people were causing dissensions and obstacles, nobody knows of whom Paul was speaking, according to my NIV study Bible. The ESV, instead of dissensions, has divisions. Options as to what kind of dissensions or divisions could be caused. Well, it could be doctrinal heresies, founders of cults, maybe. The mention of doctrine in this verse makes one think that's what Paul has in mind. He says, dissensions and obstacles contrary to doctrine you have learned. So it sounds like false doctrine. And churches always have problems with this. That'll never stop. The devil loves to screw up people's doctrine. It could be the dissensions that Paul is talking about here is fights over things that don't matter. The are the doubtful things. Romans 14 was all about that. That was just two sections earlier. So it could be that or it could be both. But at any rate. Watch out for them. And that's good lessons for us today in the church is watch out for them. Not be paranoid about them, but at least watch out for them. Some of the obstacles that could be mentioned, the Mosaic Law preached by Judaizers, according to John Gill, antinomianism, according to Cranfield, Gnostics, according to Cranfield, or selfish, strong Roman Christians who don't give, who don't cut their weak brethren, especially their weak Jewish brethren, some slack, according to Cranfield. But anyway, all that stuff, avoid them, Paul says. We go to verse 18. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. Sounds like American day pol- modern-day American politicians, frankly, although, of course, he was not talking about that. Smooth talk. False teachers, were not. if they were not attractive and convincing, no one would be suckered by them. Unbelieving liberal Protestants are a good example of smooth talkers with their theological seminaries and their theological professors. I remember sitting into a college religion class with a theological liberal. Oh, he could talk so good. I slept in his class. I showed him a lot of disrespect. I feel sort of guilty about it, but I leaned back in my desk against the back wall, and I was trying to listen to him telling me how the Bible wasn't true, and the next thing I know, I was snoring away and all of a sudden my neighbor poked me with the elbow and says wake up wake up and i look up and old dr jones was donald jones was his name and he's staring at me with looks that would kill i'm sure he didn't believe in a hell but i'm sure he wished i was in it at that moment so anyway here's some scriptures about smooth talking opponents of the gospel first corinthians 11 14 through 15 And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no great thing if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Oh, we're just here to love you. We're just here to tell you that you can go to heaven, just live like hell, and you'll go to heaven because God loves you. You can hear the liberal pratter now as they lie about everything that Jesus spoke. Jeremiah fourteen fourteen. but the Lord said to me, these prophets are prophesying a lie in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, worthless divination, the deceit of their own minds. Yeah, well, that covers liberal Protestants too. 
as well as all other possible errors like legalism, Gnosticism, whatever, any other kind of heresy you might think of, uh, antinomianism, Trinitarian heresies, uh, anti-Trinitarian heresies, and so forth. Acts 20, verse 29, I know that after my, this is Paul before the Ephesian elders when he met him at Miletus on his way back home at the end of the third journey. Acts 20, verse 29, I know, says Paul, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul knew who his enemies were. Got to watch out for these people. Philippians 3, 2, watch out for dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Those were the legalistic type of opponents. So the early church had doctrinal heresy everywhere. Maybe we don't have as much today because we're a little bit more sophisticated, but no. We got, it might be different kinds of heresy. We got heresy everywhere. You just have to watch out for it and don't be seduced by it. Now, Paul says that these false people that don't serve our Lord Christ, they serve their own appetites. Their end is, their God is their belly and their end is destruction, Paul said in another place. Note the strong denunciation that Paul makes of the factionalists' motives. People who teach from the love of the Lord and the truth, they won't have ulterior motives. And it doesn't take long if you watch people that you'll see, where's their heart? Do they care about themselves or do they care about God and Jesus? Do they care about how many people listen to their sermons, how many people are in the church, how much money they're making and all that? Look at their motives. Now notice Paul in verse 18, Romans 16, says that these false teachers, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. This implies that people who are listening to them are naive. And folks, a lot of Christians are very, very naive, kind of like sheep. They don't understand that that sheep, that wolf that's dressed up in sheep's clothing is a wolf. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I fear that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a complete and poor, pure devotion to Christ. Now, notice Eve was innocent. She was naive. She'd never sinned. She'd never known what sin was. She'd never seen anybody else sin. And the devil in the form of that serpent came and just sucked her into ruining my life, doggone it, because she caused Adam to fall. And when Adam fell, the whole frippin' human race fell. And we've been living with the consequences ever since. So... Complete and pure devotion to Christ. Keep it there. Don't be seduced from that. The ESV, instead of having unsuspecting as the Home and Christian Study Bible has, the ESV says the naive. These false teachers deceive the hearts of the naive. Steve Ackerson makes a point. Little children have to beware of strangers. Why? Because they're naive. They don't understand that strangers can hurt you. Likewise, Christians need to realize that false teachers can destroy your life. I've had one big battle with false teachers, hyperpreterous heretics who deny the resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't in my church, but it was in a friend's church, and I, I heard firsthand of all the damage that was being done. It was an absolute disaster. People were literally being spiritually flayed and chopped up. Romans 16, verse 19. Paul continues writing to the Romans, The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good, yet innocent about what is evil. Paul softens his admonition here with a little bit of sugar. He says, oh, man, you're obeying Christ, and, and, and your obedience is so well known that your reputation of your obedience to Christ and your doctrinal purity and your moral purity and all that has reached everybody, and everybody knows about the Roman church. And I rejoice over that. However, in other words, you guys are being good, 
You've been doing good, but you can still trip up. So please be careful. And how to be careful. Be wise about what is good. Know what's good and innocent about what is evil. Stay away from evil. That's just another way of saying what, what Jesus said in Matthew 10:16. Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents. Paul says, be wise about what is good. Jesus says, be shrewd as serpents. And then Jesus says, and as harmless as doves, which is the same thing as saying yet innocent about what is evil, because doves are innocent of sin. So in other words, you've got to know about sin to guard against it, but you don't need to participate in it. And sometimes that can be a, a fine line. Romans 16:20, the God of peace, Paul continues, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now that soon is a word I love to talk about because I'm a preterist, an orthodox preterist. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, most evangelicals take the soon crushing Satan under your feet to happen at Satan's final doom, which of course is at the end of the world. This is according to the NIV Study Bible, and that's typical. Well, soon, really, and since Paul wrote that, we've been going over 2,000 years, and who knows how much further we've got to go. Now, what part of soon is it that we don't understand? I mean... That soon? 2,000 years plus? I don't think so. Let me give you a typical futurist take on this verse. This is from the NIV, my NIV study Bible quote. These texts, and he, and he mentions a few that have soon in it and things like that, near and soon. These texts do not mean that the early Christians believed that Jesus would return within a few years and thus were mistaken. I agree with that. Rather, they regarded the death and resurrection of Christ as the crucial events of history that began the last days. Since the next great event, I would agree with that too. Since the next great event in God's redemptive plan is the second coming of Christ, I don't agree with that. The night, no matter how long chronologically it may last, is nearly over. Is soon. Well, that's, that's the typical dodge that futurist evangelicals, evangelicals use to avoid the plain meaning of soon. Again, what part of soon don't we understand? I mean, that's just gobbledygook, theological gobbledygook. The next great event when Paul was writing was eighty seventy, when Jesus was coming to destroy the temple, as he said, in as even the futurists admit, in Matthew 24, first three verses, and as I'm an Orthodox preterist, all the way at least up to the, in the 30s, that whole passage was talking about Jesus coming to destroy the sinful, anti-God, anti-Christ, rabbinic, coalition of Jew, Jews who killed Jesus and persecuted the prophets. That's what the next event was. And so when you see these soon verses, you know, a lot of times you need to look at 8070. Now, I don't think this soon refers to 8070, but I do think we need to take the word soon literally because isn't that the way we're supposed to interpret the scriptures? I mean, dispensationalists are screaming that word literal every chance they get. If the words were written with the intent of being literal, then we should interpret them as literally. Now, where is there any indication that near or soon is to be taken near, uh, non-literally? It's to be taken literally because it's obviously literal. And besides, how are the Romans going to crush Satan's under their feet at the end of the world? Paul says here, the God of peace will soon crush, crush Satan under your feet. That's the Romans' feet. Oh, really? The Roman Christians are going to be bashing Satan when Satan's thrown into the lake of fire? At the great white throne judgment, the Romans are going to be doing that? Uh-uh. Can't be. So, what does it mean? Well, if we take it to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, John Gill denies that, and I agree with him, because the destroyed Jews weren't causing the Romans any problem. The 
the Jews who were destroyed in eighty seven seventy they weren't causing the Romans any problem, and so and the Romans didn't have anything to do with crushing them either, crushing the devil at eighty seventy. So we don't I don't think it's that. Here's the third option though. This is the easiest option. The false teachers that Paul had just talked about would soon be crushed. And that makes perfectly sense. It's good sense. It fits with the context. This is according to John Gill and Adam Clark, and I think they are exactly right. Now, notice that the God of peace will soon crush Satan, and and Satan, of course, coming as an angel of light in the guise of those false teachers. They will be crushed. Doctrinal orthodoxy will prevail, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Notice that Paul says the God of peace will crush Satan. Again, that is to contrast the false teachers who were in verse 17 said to cause dissensions and obstacles. Dissensions, and of course dissensions is the opposite of peace. And Paul is contrasting those false teachers with the peace that God brings when he crushes those nasty false teachers under the Romans' feet. And then Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And of course, that's your standard sign-off phrase, closing statement that uses a lot of his letters. And Adam Clark says, because of that, Paul probably intended to end his letter here, but he added a postscript, maybe two. Maybe there was some time before the letter was sent, so he thought some more stuff, and so he added some more stuff to chapter 16. Of course, you realize that the letter didn't have chapters in it. That was added later. But he thought of extra stuff to write, so he wrote. We go to verse 21. Timothy, my co-worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sisypater, my fellow countrymen, greet you. So he thinks it's some more people that are with him there in Corinth. We see Timothy. Now, Timothy was with Paul a lot. He was with Paul in Rome after the third journey on the trip back to Rome. After the third journey, he was with Paul on the way from Macedonia all the way to Jerusalem at the third journey. I'm trying to remember exactly when we see him. Of course, he was on the first journey when Paul picked him up at Lystra. So Timothy, and of course, Paul wrote two famous letters to him, first and second Timothy. So Timothy was with him a lot, and this proves he was with Paul at Corinth when Paul wrote the letter in the in 53, 54 AD or so, whenever he wrote it. Lucius was there with Paul. Who is this Lucius? Well, here are some options. It could be Lucius of Cyrene, mentioned in Acts 13.1. He was one of the five Antiochian brothers who sent Paul and Barnabas off on the missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas were two of those, and there was three others. One was Simeon Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, and Menean, close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So those five brothers, it was not the Antiochian church, by the way, in Acts 13 that sent them off, sent those five off. It was the, sent those two off, Paul and Barnabas. It was five prophets and teachers. That's it, alone. They were in the church, but they were not set off by the whole church. So, yeah, it could be that. Another option, this is according to Adam Clark, who says probably it's Luke the Apostle. He was with Paul at the time of the writing of the letter to the Romans, according to John Gill. Well, it could be Luke, but I don't know why he calls him Lucius instead of Luke. Those names are always iffy, spotty. You know, It's hard to say. I mean, Simon Peter had, how many names did he have? Let's see, Simon, Simeon, Peter, Cephas, had four of them. But at any rate... Jason was also there here in Romans 16:21. Jason sends greetings with Paul. Jason was possibly the Jason in Thessalonica, Thessalonica mentioned in Acts 17, verses 5 through 9. Adam Clark says it's probably that Jason. Let's recall what he did. Acts 17, 5 through 9. 
This is on the second missionary journey. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. The, the apostles were staying in Jason's house. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has received them as guest. They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, Jesus. The Jews stirred up the crowd and the city officials who heard these things. So taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released him. So Jason was quite involved with the missionary team in Thessalonica on the second journey, and possibly he had come over from Thessalonica, come on down to Corinth. One other is mentioned here, Sosipater. This is possibly the Sopater, who was the son of Pyrrhus from Berea. Gil thinks for sure that's who it was. NIV Study Bible suggests it. Let's read about that. Acts 20, verse 4. This is referring to the traveling companions of Paul on his way back to Jerusalem at the end of the third journey. He, Paul, was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, and some other brothers also. So that's probably the same guy there. He was at Corinth on the third journey. These are all said to be Paul's fellow countrymen in verse 21. That means fellow Jews. So Paul had a lot of Jewish people working with him, interestingly enough, as he preached to the Gentiles. Timothy was not Jewish, but the other three were. Moving on to verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Which might at first seem to be a little shocking since we know that Paul wrote the letter. Well, Tertius was Paul's secretary, his amanuensis as John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. And because he inserts this statement there, it's not clear whether the next two verses are written by Tertius or by Paul, as Adam Clark points out. We go to verse 23. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Hortus greets you. Well, we don't know who Cortus is. Gaius is one of many Gaiuses mentioned in the New Testament, so we're not sure who he is, but he's usually identified with Titius Justus, according to my NIV study Bible. Now, Titius Justus was the God-fearer in whose, in whose house Paul stayed in Corinth. You notice in verse 23, the verse says, Gaius, who is host to me, and since we know that Titius Justus is who put Paul up in Corinth, therefore, in Corinth on the second journey, therefore, the two are logically identified as being the same person. Acts 18.7, So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. This is after Paul on the second journey had trouble with the Jews in Corinth. There's another Gaius as mentioned in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.14. Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. But again, it's, you know, it's hard. There's lots of Gaiuses, so... We won't be too hard on that one. Now, there's another guy named Erastus, the city treasurer, and he's kind of interesting because, well, before we go on to Erastus, let's stay here on Gaius a minute. He must have been a wealthy man to host the whole church because it says, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church. That sounds like the whole church met in his house. Now, either you could say that was one small church in Corinth that only met in one house, or you can say it was a huge house. We also have to consider that there were lots of spiritual gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Although I might point out to you that just because all those gifts are mentioned doesn't mean that everyone is mentioned every week. Everyone uh, was exercised every week. I mean, you could have 
teaching one week and healing the next week and tongues and interpretation the next week and so forth. But there is indication here that he was a, a wealthy man to be able to host the whole church. Now, I've had someone put a problem to me because I believe in meeting in homes. They say, well, how can you say that the early church met in homes because of all those gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14? Look at here, the whole church just met in one house. Well, first of all, wealthy Roman Christians had big houses. I have a friend who has spent some time looking at Roman houses and examining, for example, a wealthy house at Pompeii, which was buried under the the eruption, the Vesuvius eruption. And he figures that he measured and so forth. He figures about 70 people could meet in a house. Well, you got 70 people in a church. You can do all those gifts. And not only that, how do you know they didn't meet in shifts? They could have met at different times in that one house. So that's not an argument against the idea that the early church men in houses just because they have to accommodate all those gifts. Well, whoever this Gaius was, there are some other possibilities that he was the same as the Gaius, the Macedonian, mentioned in Acts 19.29. This is on the third journey. So the city, Ephesus, was filled with confusion, and they all rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus. Paul didn't end up in that riot. He was on the outside of the amphitheater, but Gaius was one of them. And there's also a Gaius of Derby, also on the third journey, Acts 24. He was one that was accompanying Sopater, as well as some other brothers, Gaius from Derby. But we don't know who these guys are. Now, let's go to Erastus. Now, we don't know who Erastus is either. He may be the same Erastus mentioned in other places, but the name is fairly common, so it's hard to be certain, according to the NIV Study Bible. For example, in Acts 19.22, So after sending two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, he stayed. He himself stayed in, in Asia for a while. So in, in Ephesus, on the third journey, Paul had a helper named Erastus. Might be the same guy who ended up traveling to Corinth. We don't know. Second Timothy 4.20, Erastus has remained at Corinth. Well, Paul is talking to Timothy about an Erastus at Corinth. That might be the same one. These names are just a little bit mysterious. But the interesting thing about Erastus is that archaeologists have found a block of stone in a paved square in the archaeological in, in Corinth, and the inscription on that paved square says this quote, Erastus, commissioner of public works, bore the expense of this pavement. Now I don't know whether I don't know about the translation. A lot of times offices they have trouble translating them into equivalent English terms because a lot of political jurisdiction use different offices with different titles with different functions. But the Greek is ideal, A-E-D-I-L-E, maybe in English, ideal. Greek might be ideale. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. He was one who was elected to oversee the city finances. So it would, if it's true, that would be just one more archaeological proof that the Bible is quite accurate in its details. But it's just, that's just a possibility. We don't know if it's the same Erastus, but it is kind of interesting. We go to verse 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now, just a textual note here. The NIV puts this verse in the margin. Some scripts have, have it, some don't. Doesn't matter. That's a typical way of signing off. What a great way to sign off the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, grace, grace. It's always about God's mercy, not about what we deserve from him, but what he's done for us. 
Paul is not quite finished with the book, even though it sounds like he's signing off there in verse 24. We go to verse 25. Now to him who has power to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages. Paul calls the gospel here my gospel. He's very confident about what he's preaching. You know, a lot of times you say my, and it sounds kind of arrogant. I remember one time, I mentioned something about my church, meaning the church that I go to, and I had a brother accuse me of trying to take it over. I'm the big shot. I'm in charge of it because I said my church. And so I learned very quick. I can't even say my church anymore, you know, because people are so sensitive about power grabs. Well, Paul wasn't sensitive about it. He said my gospel. He wasn't worried about somebody accusing him of being arrogant. He could have meant, according to the NIV Study Bible, that this was a gospel received by direct revelation. In other words, my gospel is different than other gospels in the sense of how it was received. I received it by direct revelation. Other people have just heard it through word of mouth, through me and through the other apostles and their preaching it. But I had it from direct revelation, so my gospel is a little bit more special in that sense. It doesn't mean that the gospel is different in content, however, just different in the manner in which it was received. Now, Paul mentions that this gospel is according to the revelation of the mystery. Revelation means hidden, revealing something that was hidden. Mystery is a truth hidden in the past, but now revealed. Paul got the word from the mystery religions, but they used the term in the sense of esoteric ideas that only the initiated could receive. So for example, the Greeks, the Eleusian mysteries. To this day, nobody knows exactly what went on inside those mysterious rites because everybody was sworn to secrecy. But this is not the truth of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel means that God just didn't tell that you have the plan of salvation for a while, a long time, and then now the plan of salvation is out there. It's revealed. It's not meant to be quiet anymore. Everybody's supposed to know. We all know how to get saved now. We all know the truths of the, of the, of the scriptures, unlike the Eleusian mysteries. Here's another place where Paul used that word mysteries a lot, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 10. However, we do speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. Long time ago, and then boom, he finally reveals it. has been a mystery until the time he reveals it. It was a long time ago because the wisdom was before the ages, and then it was revealed long after Verse 8, 1 Corinthians 2, None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what I did not see and ear did not hear, and what never entered the human mind, God prepared this for those who love him. Now God has revealed these things. Again, the pagan mysteries were not revealed to the public, but God has revealed his mysteries to us so that we can now know his will. God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, what exactly was the mystery that Paul's referring to here? The revelation of the mystery that was kept silent for long ages? Well, the first option is, is that God purposed to count the Gentiles as his people, not just the Jews. Now, Steve Ackerson, John Gill, and Adam Clark all say this, and Adam Clark points to verse 26 to help back it up. Paul, in the next verse, says this. This mystery is now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures according to the command of the eternal God to advance the mediates of faith among all nations, and all nations is all Gentiles. So there's your, there's your mystery right there. The Jews couldn't believe that the Gentiles would receive prophetic revelation, but yes, that's what it is now. That's the way it is now, and that's been revealed to us with that which was formerly a mystery. Well, that makes sense to me. There's some other options also that might be, John Gill suggests, the mystery of Christ's incarnation and redemption of sinners. That was not known in the Old Testament. 
for millennia, but now it is known. Or it could be just a more general reference to all the truths of the gospel which have been hidden for millennia and now revealed, according to John Gill, who suggests that option. But whatever it was, it's been revealed. Verses 26 and 27. These mysteries now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all nations. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, you know, I said earlier, because Tertius mentioned that he was writing the, the letter, the amanuensis, Paul's secretary, that was several verses back, and then the question arose, well, did Tertius or Paul add these verses on? This doesn't sound like Tertius to me, folks. This sounds like this is Paul speaking. It's too elevated for Tertius. Besides, he mentions my gospel. Tertius wouldn't say it was my gospel in verse 25. So this is Paul speaking. Notice that he calls the scriptures prophetic through the prophetic scriptures. Romans 1-2, at the beginning of the chapter, he said this, which he promised long ago, the gospel, which he promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the Holy Scriptures were considered to be the work of prophets, which means that they were, spoke words from God. This was not just a document, a literary historical document, in which people edited and made mistakes and scratched, you know, typical garbage that liberal Protestants do. Notice in Romans 1-2, he called them the Holy Scriptures. In Romans 16-26, he called them the prophetic scriptures. That's a pretty high attitude toward Scripture that Paul had. Compare that to the modern detractors of Scriptures, our liberal Protestant friends who spend decades and hours of every day and day all the days of every week and every week of every month and every month of every year trying to prove that the Bible's got errors in it. You wonder, well, if they're so interested in tearing the Bible down, why are they spending so much time doing this? Haven't they got something better to do? But anyway, Paul... He had a very, very high view of the Scriptures. Of course, as he did, the only wise God, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. And, of course, glory means public manifestation of honor. So as we give glory to Jesus Christ, when we get saved, when we get other people saved, when we live godly, when we live righteously, we give glory to him when we live in unity and peace and love with one another. All right, one last comment, and we will finish the book of Romans. Notice in verse 26, Paul says this, But now reveal, this mystery is now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all nations. So Paul concludes his letter with an emphasis on the universality of the gospel as opposed to Jewish exclusivism, the idea that only Jews can get saved, not Gentiles. The Jewish scriptures made known the truth, the holy prophetic scriptures according to the command of the eternal God, and the Gentile nations are receiving the truth through the obedience of faith. So, when he says now revealed, he means in the New Testament era, 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 the truth of God is revealed. The nations are receiving the gospel. Of course, that's that's close to Paul's heart. He was an apostle to the Gentiles, and that's how he ends up the book of Romans. Ladies and gentlemen, now I am finished with Romans chapter 16 and the whole book of Romans. I hope you enjoyed our trek through Romans, and I hope you stay tuned for my next audio in which I will discuss the beginning of 1 Corinthians. See you then.